1: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
0: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
1: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
2: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
3: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com
2: slash podcast. All right, Matt, I've got an inflation data point for you. When I started on Wall Street in 1986 as an analyst at Payne Weber, the house of Payne, Mike's salary is $22,500. And now the kids are starting today at $100,000, $110,000. Um, that's inflation. Let's bring in a Nadarajan. He's a finance reporter for Bloomberg News, he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. He's all vaxxed up and, and ready to go. And He's got the big take story here. So, Shri, we've seen a lot of stories over the last several weeks how investment banks are really upping their pay for some of these uh, in, uh, entry-level investment bankers.
4: What's going on? Well, if you ask the junior bankers right now, and the one thing that might please you is they will tell you that it is the house of pain all over <laughs> Wall Street right now. They're all balking at these 100 plus hour work weeks. COVID, of course, has made it a scenario where they're not in the same office, where they're all maybe in their parents' basements in small houses and tiny rooms working like crazy. And we've had this moment through the course of this year. It all started with this leaked presentation out of Goldman Sachs, where a bunch of 13 first-year analysts, complains about the rigors of their work life. And that seems to have lit a match across the industry. Clearly the report ricocheted around the industry because it resonated with so many folks. And the companies have come out and tried to respond. It started with words of sympathy. We moved on to Pelotons and one-time bonuses (laughs) to outright raises. And it seems that everyone has gravitated around the solution of more pay to ease everyone's pain. Why more pay instead
3: of fewer hours or um, a a better work-life balance?
4: To be honest, Matt, the honest answer to that really will probably be because that's the easy solution. We have uh, a a former analyst at Goldman Sachs who, who left last year who talks to us, and he talks to us about this idea that when he was working these crazy hours at Goldman, he used to, put on his headphones, uh, blast up this uh, fake rain noise on his on his <laughs> headset, go into the bathroom stalls and just take these power naps. That's the only way he could cope with it. And he then left for another finance job, burnt out by the strain and is now a blogger. And he says, there are negative repercussions to that. It shows that the fact that everyone's moving towards pay is that it's very difficult to change. And Paul and I were just talking about this whole idea that when you look at the culture right now compared to 10 20 30 years ago not a lot of that has changed if you're in your first year or your second year straight out of college that grunt work is still the core of it there are those who are speaking out now and saying we're getting burned out by this something has to change whereas the successful folks in the industry will tell you you need to do this this is your stepping stone to greater glory in this industry and the payout truly is lavish and extraordinary relative to anything else you see in the outside world
3: the pledges, right? <laughs> the
4: this is what the
3: pledges. this is what the pledges were like in the fraternity. Exactly, and you know,
2: I'll tell you what is different, Matt, from you know, prior, just and it's just a, it's simply the, the pandemic. I mean, one of the ways I got through it, I think a lot of my peers got through those those very difficult hours and the many weeks without a day off and all that kind of stuff, was the camaraderie we had. You know, I was surrounded by fifty other analysts uh, at Payne Weber. We supported each other. All my friends were working in an investment banks, so uh, there's a support system there. Now these kids are. You know, isolated, in many of them in their apartments, and and I can't imagine having to deal with you know kind of the the pressure there. But Shri, it, it doesn't seem like money's the answer to me. They got to figure out a way here to, uh, as Matt was suggesting, kind of improve that work life balance a little bit. Or, 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 but but
3: Paul, what was the answer back then? I mean, you read um,
2: again Matt the answer. Le- Matt Levine's was...
3: columns. The answer. The answer was to get through it. You you work yeah. through it, and eventually you become. A um, mess. you know, the big man on campus, sure. and then you're not spending too much time in the office, and you're getting paid millions.
2: Exactly, and I think the uh, the answer is you got to get people back to the offices. Um, that would be if I were, you know, because it's not really going to be the pay. I don't think so. Shri, are we are we hearing from these uh, companies that they're thinking maybe a little bit more? Out of the box, maybe in terms of what to do here.
4: Well, well first, let me take the other side of the bed uh, with the two of you, because I think what is perhaps different today relative to uh, two or three decades back is that the only road to paradise is not finance anymore. Yeah, so even if point. you have a long, yeah. hard, bumpy road to start with, you know that the payoff is going to be great a few years down the road. Now, if you're graduating from college, you have the lure of technology. Yeah. They are in great demand, so the the cream of the crop, the top end of the talent pool, is being attracted from all sorts of industries, and they have the option of going into tech. They have the option of starting their own companies. You don't want to slave out two or three years as an analyst making slide decks and presentations when you, when you see a couple of young guys, younger than 30-year-olds, suddenly running a $100 billion company. When they have that lure, mm-hmm. banks have to do more than they have been doing to be able to get that best talent.
3: It's a strong point. Uh, yep. So that, that basically, there there are other ways to be master of the universe. You don't have to work for Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan. You can go even live in California, which yep. has got to be a better coast. I you mean, think? you
2: know, when I was in business school, it was literally for the finance people. You either went consulting. Or Wall Street now, as Shri is mentioning, technology and the other thing. You know, as I serve on the, the board of the Business School at Duke, one of the big things when I talk about the curriculum, the demand from students is for entrepreneurship. You know, and as Sri was saying, so, uh, you know, I, again, the investment banks, the the it's much more competitive as you're saying, Shri. So it, it's almost like. Money might not be the go-to like it historically has been. It, whenever, whenever there's a problem on Wall Street, you can just throw money at it and it solves itself. By
3: the way, Sri, what's the pay like there? If you go work for FinTech, if you end up in California, um, are, are they getting comparable? Are they also getting 100, $110,000 to start stock plus stock options. options?
4: Yes. If you start off, the base pay, I would argue is probably comparable. The banks will tell you the base pay is not the full story. That's just the sticker price to get them in the door. Spend a year here and have a great year, much like they've had in 2020 and 2021, where the banks have been bathed in billions of dollars of extra profit, the bonuses can start to look pretty chunky. You could be starting to push 175, 200,000, and that's a lot of money for someone who's 21, 22. Wow. But at the same time, when you go to the West Coast and you think of uh, the startup land, of Silicon Valley, the idea that your stock options may not have a ceiling The idea that your company could be worth so much more if it just takes off, that has the kind of appeal, and that's the kind of thing that the banks are fighting against right now.
3: Plus, you're wearing shorts and (laughs) flip-flops. So, I mean, there's so many other bonuses, I would say, probably, to working out there. You're starting something. You're part of a movement. um, It's sexy. Um, yeah, and you're not in New York. In any case, Shri, thanks very much. It's a great story. I recommend everybody check it out. If you have a Bloomberg in front of you, NI, big take, go to get all of our deep dives. And this is the latest. This
0: is Bloomberg.
2: I want to bring in Frank Rabinski. He's a chief macro strategist for Egon Asset Management. They have about $464 billion in assets under management. They're located in Charm City. That would be Baltimore, Maryland. Frank, I want to start with you. I'm just reading some of your work here. I'd love to get your thoughts on the labor economy because um, people are thinking about inflation and, and, and you could argue inflation is really not going to be a big issue unless we get a, you know, we get wage inflation. How
3: do you, kind of think Speak about for yourself. Yes, exactly. Housing inflation is killing me.
2: It is absolutely right. And, and rental in, is getting crazy too as well over here in the States. Talk to us about kind of the labor market from your perspective.
5: Sure. And thank you for having me, guys. Great to be back. So one, one thing we're looking for is, is a normalization in the labor market consistent with a normalization in, in the economy. And one, one area where we haven't seen this it's interesting to watch, is. You look at the enormous numbers of job openings out there, and, and that would, you know, historically, you know, the, those are positively correlated with unemployment, right? As is a lot of people, you know, a lot of job openings, you would expect unemployment to, to, to be quite low. So if, if you go throughout time, you, you can chart that, and it creates a curve. But what we've seen in this recovery is that curve is blown out, meaning, given the enormous number of job openings, unemployment should be down in the three, and right now we're called, you know, 5.4 percent is the headline. But if you adjust for low participation, you're probably more in, in, in the sevens. So there's really been this kind of disconnect and, and something that we're when if we want to get a full normalization, we're expecting to see that 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 curve kind of come back more to historical levels. So right now, what that's saying is, you know, there, there's some type of covid related mismatch mm. or, 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 you know, something in the labor market from covid. Uh, that that's that you know, as opposed to your kind of historical uh, cycles.
3: It's my favorite curve, by the way. Um, you've got your bell curve, you've got your Phillips curve, you know, but the beverage curve, I think, is the best one. And at some point, don't you have to see? Paul and I talk to um, business owners all the time, and CEOs and COOs that just can't get enough people in chairs, can't get enough people to work and they're having to raise um, pay. I mean, we, we're, we're going to talk about a little bit later on Wall Street. They're doing it as well. Um, don't you have to see wage inflation?
5: Well, so if the demand for labor is outstripping the supply in the long run, yes, right? But what the question is, is the supply of labor going to come back? And that's where when you look at, you know, as we head into the fall, there's a couple issues that are going to be rectify that could create a big increase in the supply of labor. So, you know, those being, um, you know, schools are largely going to be back in, in person. So you free up some potential labor in the parents that had to be home. You have the, the expiration of enhanced unemployment in insurance. Um, and then you also have, you know, ongoing health concerns. And if you finally get a, a, a FDA formal approval of one of the vaccines, you know, that could, could help uh, the, the vaccination process. So as those things play out, you could see an unleashing of the the supply of labor, which you know to your point you know, now your supply demand you know starts to become more balanced when it comes to labor. So it could actually start to you know cool off the wage increases. I mean, right now to your point, we're trying to get people back into the labor force. Labor force participation is very low, but you know as people if they start to come back, especially in size, then it could start putting a cooling pressure on under the under those price uh, on those those wage increases.
2: All right, Frank, so given that economic backdrop, that labor backdrop, how are you at at Aegon kind of thinking about your allocation of capital here in terms of generating maximum returns?
5: Certainly. Well, we still think this is a very positive environment for assets that are levered to nominal growth. So mainly equities and and low-quality credit. Um, you know, we're, we're, our forecast is we're going to have above-trend growth for many quarters to come. And, you know, maybe the, it, it's, you know, not 6%, but it's 4%. But, again, you know, that, that's real growth. But you think of nominal growth, so you add the inflation side to that. You know, we could have nominal growth in the high single digits for the next year and a half. And you, you look at, at the quarterly earnings reports just from the second quarter, even the first quarter as well, it's the same theme. Revenues are beating. Margins are strong, and you're seeing enormous beats on the earnings line, and hence the, the earnings forecast continue to get taken up. And we think you know, that that's been a big story for 2021, but when we look into 22, we see that continuing. And you look at the, at the S&P of, you know, call it 220 now is, is the uh, consensus ballpark. You know, that, that, we think that could easily be a 232, 35 number. So with that kind of earnings momentum, we think it's very positive for, for the uh, equity story.
3: Have you ever seen anything like this, by the way, Frank? I mean, you have a pretty long career. You worked for Spear Leeds and Kellogg as a trader, right? Um, You've you've worked in Zurich, Switzerland. Uh, You worked for UBS, um, and now you're at Aegon. Over the last 20 years, I just haven't seen this kind of appreciating market. It seems like we're just barreling headlong into a bubble.
6: Well,
5: it's... Well, first of all, no, I haven't seen it. it. It seems like everything's been compressed, right? The whole cycle. You know, we've gone from the early cycle right into, you know, mid-cycle, and it's only been a little over a year. So you think of last cycle was over a decade. So things are being very compressed. Um, you know, when you think of bubbles, well, I think of kind of relative prices out there. And I think, you know, if you talk about a bubble of equities, well, but what's, you know, part of the attraction or large attraction in the equity story is the lack of attraction on the fixed, fixed income side. Right, a ten-year at you know 130. I mean, that's the the dividend yield on the S&P 500. Um, you know, w- without the upside. So, you know, I, I kind of look at the relative game and say, well, you know, if you have to own assets, I mean, you know, you, you could own cash or gold, like yep. Plantier is doing. Um, but to me, you know, it, there's still an attraction in that relative value game yep. uh, for, for that equity story where cash flows are still growing at a very strong rate.
3: Great talking to you, Frank. Thanks so much for your time, Frank Rubinsky There, chief macro strategist at Aegon Asset Management. I want to bring in now Todd Zipperman. He joins us from Zipperman Compliance Services. He is the founding principal there, out of Philadelphia. And um, Todd, we, when we when we talk about crypto, and there's been so much reporting on Gary Gensler and questions about how he would address. You know, uh, Bitcoin and the entire crypto market, it strikes me that, well, not only with crypto, but with a number of things, there's a lot of talk from the SEC, a lot of warnings, a lot of speeches, but not a lot of actual regulation I can get my hands around.
6: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, And and hi, guys. Good good to talk to you. Yeah, I I think that's right. Um, But that's not unusual. And I'm not sure it necessarily foretells what's going to happen or not happen. The SC does this; they start talking about issues, they make public statements, a lot of speeches, they float some weather balloons or some trial balloons, in case be And then and then uh, they'll see what happens. Um, I think uh, Gary Gensler getting involved with um, this idea of crypto exchanges having to do reporting for taxes. Is a start at least he, the, the SEC came out with a specific position, um, and there's obviously been a lot of talk about whether or not the SEC is going to approve a Bitcoin ETF. And there's a, there's a whole backlog of, of of firms that have have done filings there.
2: That's kind of where I wanted to go, Todd. Give me a sense of where we are with a, a Bitcoin ETF. It seems the demand is clearly there in the marketplace, but the regulators just aren't sure. Just give us a, a lay of the land.
6: Yeah. Um, well, first of all, there are, there are crypto funds out there, not registered with the SEC, but there's lots of ways you can invest in pooled financial products throughout the world that have crypto exposure. Um, I think where the SEC is going to go, they're going to approve something. They've already said that a a closed-end fund, i.e., not a mutual fund, a restricted redeem, redemption fund, you you can invest in crypto or a piece of it in crypto. But there's a couple different ways of looking at this. One, investing in crypto directly, like like directly in Bitcoin. There's the firms. There's funds that invest in Bitcoin futures or other crypto futures, and then there's also firms out there that invest in companies that have exposure to cryptocurrency, not unlike you saw with the early cannabis funds. So they may not be actually crypto cryptocurrencies, uh, but they're, they're firms that play in that marketplace. The is going to do something on the open-end side. They, I think they have to. There's so much pressure building up. And, and the reality is there's so much demand for this. If the SEC doesn't do it, someone else will. Another regulator will get involved either in the United States, but more, more likely you know, offshore, this is going to be a market that's going to be big uh, worldwide in the future. You know, m- maybe the, uh, you know, the British authorities will get involved and want to be the regulator of choice and, and then they'll own that market. So I think, yes, is going to have to step in and I think they will.
3: All right. So that's the hot compliance um, issue that we've been talking about lately. Before that, it was um, all surrounding GameStop and payment for order order flow. It seems to be something that I guess Joe Sixpack thinks it's bad or at least, um, Joe, Congressman, thinks it's bad, but as far as I can tell, having gone through the mechanics um, as you know in, in, as deeply as I could, payment for order flow seems to benefit the retail investors that Congress wants to protect.
6: It can. Um, I, I think the, the, the factual question is, is it, look, retail investors, whether they be uh, uh, on the investment side or the brokerage side, the trading side, they're expensive to service. That is, the, that is a fact. And someone's got to get paid to service them, right? So, you know, this idea that, well, the, the clearing brokers will pay back to people like Robinhood money to, to, for the service and get, get the trading, it seems, it seems like a great idea, so long as the end client is at least not worse off than paying a straight up commission. So I think that question is an open well, one. Well, or paying a Whether market not,
3: maker, right?
6: I mean, that's right. That's yeah, right. Which is, and, and which I is think way more is the question is, Who's better off here? Are, are you better off paying a straight up commission and knowing what it is, or are you better off sort of paying a soft cost? because your, your execution isn't as great, because there's payload going back and forth. And I, I think as of now, I, I would say to a large extent, uh, Paying Fortifull has been more of a marketing gimmick than a true benefit to end clients. I do think it can be a, good, a benefit to end clients. But the question becomes, if, if there really is true benefit to the retail client, someone's going to have to pay for that.
2: All right, Todd. So Gary Gensler, the new uh, sheriff on Wall Street, if you will, what do you think is kind of his top items on his agenda? Because you could argue he's got a very full plate here.
6: <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you've hit on two of them. You know, he's got a lot of pressure on crypto. I'm not sure that was his number one agenda going in, but it's really become the way. I think uh, the GameStop thing and payment order flow got ahead of him. I don't think that was certainly a, a big issue before that. But you've got a lot of big issues. You've got things like uh, regulation best interest, suitability, and uh, and, and whether that's going to get revisited again. Um, you you have things like uh, um, a lot of talk around how to regulate firms that hire sort of miscreant brokers and how they're going to regulate that. Um, and then the market making activity—is he going to go back on some of the stuff that Clayton did around accredited investors and private placements? I think those are huge issues um, that are facing the marketplace. So, I, and, and then of course we're all worried about—you know—this market's been a bull market for how many years? Um, it, you know, things get really kind of ugly as we all know when, when things go sideways, and, and that's almost an inevitability. The question is when that's going to happen. I think that's that's on his mind as well.
3: He's got to be cracking skulls, and I wonder—we <laughs> only got twenty seconds—but does he? try and broaden the SEC's mandate, uh, naming everything that he can see as security?
6: That's been his history. That was, that was his history when he was at the CFTC. He tried to be very broad in his regulatory reach. And as I like to say, regulators like to regulate.
3: That's right. Everything's a nail if you're a carpenter. All right. Uh, Todd, <laughs> thanks very much. Todd Zipperman there. He is the founding principal of Zipperman Compliance Services. He's got a 25-year career on Wall Street um, as general counsel and representing people on the buy and the sell side. So he's um, great expert material for us on these issues. This is Bloomberg.
2: Well, the Federal Reserve remains uh, certainly on the front burner for these markets. We have the FOMC meetings, a uh, minute uh, released today at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And, of course, Jackson Hole get together uh, late next week. Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Director of Intelligence for Quill Intelligence, also a former advisor to the Dallas Federal Reserve, M.A. Bloomberg opinion contributor uh, joins us here. Plus, she's also author of the book Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. So we're going to get a lot of Fed speak over the next week or so. Danielle, what are you listening for?
1: Well, I'm listening really to, I'm down to listening to two voices, that of Jay Powell and the New York Fed's John Williams. Uh, I would have added a third, Vice Chair Clarida. Right. But it seems as if they've buried him somewhere in a basement because <laughs> we don't hear from him anymore. He was very big on inflation expectations, triggering Fed policy shifts. And now that we have indeed seen longer-term inflation expectations tick up, Clarita is curiously quiet.
3: Where do you see longer-term inflation expectations? Because when I look at you mish um, five to 10 years, it's only
1: 3%. Well, yeah, but, but remember, 3% is a leap above where it used to be. Uh, and, and 3% for Fed policy would certainly not be a comfort zone and it, it wouldn't be within their flexible framework either if it was to get to 3% and hover, hover at that level.
3: I guess that's really uh, what I'm so, asking. That's really what I'm asking, Danielle. Is 3% because I've seen 3.1% mentioned as the historical average. So um, is 3% in expectations too high for the Fed?
1: I think, I think it is. Uh, and I think that that makes things very uncomfortable for the Fed because they're extremely remiss to make a move right now because of what's happened subsequent to their meeting in July. And I, of course, refer to the slowdown here. We saw this morning that, that single-family housing permits, which is the most leading indicator of, of residential real estate, that's at a year low. Uh, you know, buyer traffic, according to the uh, National Association of Builders, that's at a year low. Mortgage applications down in six of the last eight weeks for purchases. So the Fed is seeing interest rate-sensitive sectors, despite being at the zero bound, begin to slow We've had auto sales slow three months running. So this is a very te- this is a very difficult situation because the last thing they want to do is indicate that they're tightening when the economy's slowing.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I looked at some of that data, Danielle, and I was wondering, like, on the the real estate data because I just sold my house, so I'm <laughs> paying attention to that stuff. There's just no supply of housing, so maybe that's a reason. And there's no cars, so maybe that's a reason that they're not selling cars. I mean, is this technical or... Or in fact, showing some fundamental slowness, do you think in this economy?
1: I think that this is where the message gets really convoluted. And if you look at the, if if you look for example at at the the sales per one thousand population in cars in July, that was forty seven units per one thousand Americans. If you take out the lows of twenty twenty and the Great Recession, that's the lowest in the history of the series back to nineteen sixty seven there's a good chance that we are at a point right now of having reached saturation in many of these higher-end purchases. And that's what we're actually starting to hear from home builders. I'm good friends with Ivy Zellman. And what she's hearing from her home builders is that there's major pushback in terms of the desire to buy a home right now. Hmm. It's not just a supply constraint story, especially as you see lumber prices come down, which will be a huge relief on the cost front.
3: So are we going to see at some point, a deflation in home prices,
2: says an interested buyer. (laughs) Well,
1: I I think as crazy as that notion would seem to be, uh, there's certainly the risk out there because we've seen a run-up to record levels of home price appreciation. And again, we're seeing serious pushback. Sticker shock was the word that was used uh, most often when it it comes to home prices. I was driving around a, a, a little town where I'd been looking to buy a home, uh for for two years now and every single price said every single for sale sign said price reduced i mean this this is the kind of anecdata that makes you sit sit up and say oh wait the tide is turning
2: every one of those signs in my town say under contract and uh
3: it's i, th- I think it's kind of regional there but so for sure dude i was just back with you paul yep. looking around at houses in Bronxville. I couldn't find a decent three bedroom house for less than $2 million. I mean, yeah. they were just, the $2 million houses were just boxes. Yeah. It, dilapidated boxes. I yeah, couldn't believe it.
2: Yeah. Metro New York, it's, it's just crazy. So, Danielle, let's assume we, we, we do get to the point where the Fed needs to taper, needs to think about rates. How will it actually look? Because it's been a while since a lot of us have kind of experienced this. So, how is it actually going to look to us?
1: Well, if you if you consider the fact that Christopher Waller is a board member, right? Last time we had a board member dissent was Mark Olson. I think it was two thousand two, two thousand three, when Greenspan was in office. Uh, when you consider the this, the skepticism and criticism from even on his board, you got three voting members rotating, in in January, uh, who are also would prefer to start with mortgage backed securities tapering because, again, what's, what we've seen in the home, in the home market, that's what I would look to see, and very very slight level. I wouldn't look to Jackson Hole, though, in defiance of what most surveys are saying, for, for Powell to give the signal. I think that that first signal might come more likely uh, that second to last week of September with the next F1C meeting.
3: I want to ask your take on the uh, the infrastructure plan and the spending that the, the U.S. has gotten sort of numb to. Is there going to come a point when it's a problem spending, you know, one, two, three, four trillion dollars in a bill every year? You know, rates are so low, it seems like it's affordable to do it now.
1: And that, of course, is the theory. And that has been the theory since December the 15th, 2008, when the Federal Reserve took the Fed funds rate down to the zero bound. And boy, have we borrowed like gangbusters (laughs) since then, based on that theory, based on that premise. Uh, but to answer your question, I, I think I think the pace that we're talking about spread out over eight years for some of the infrastructure spending plans that we've seen the Senate approve. I mean, that's not the stuff of nightmares. It's when you're giving out lots and lots of cash to households and running up real honest to God spending super, super fast. That's when it gets problematic from an investor perspective, from a foreign perspective. We saw foreign investors jump right back into the Treasury market in the latest month of data that we had, which shows that there's really not that much anxiety. But again, the United States remains the most attractive horse in the glue factory. (laughs) Oh,
3: boy. But it's okay that we have. All right. So uh, I guess we're going to have to leave it because we only have 20 seconds. But, Danielle, it's always great talking to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Danielle DiMartino uh, Booth there um, from Quill Intelligence. He's the CEO and director of intelligence there. Of course, she is a former advisor of the Dallas Federal Reserve and also a Bloomberg opinion contributor. When we're lucky, we get to have uh, Danielle's opinion on our um, on our page. Type O.P.I. and go for that. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the
2: podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
1: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you?